This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. Back in the 80s, AI was about hard coding knowledge. In the era that we're in right now of deep learning and machine learning, AI is about statistical learning. This is where we are. This is what this big boom of exciting new applications has been. But what is the next paradigm of AI? And what does it actually mean for our businesses? That's what we explore in this episode. Our guest this week is the Chief Scientist for Artificial Intelligence, General Electric Research, GE, obviously one of the largest enterprises in the world. Peter Tu is our guest. He joins us to discuss the transition from the previous era of AI into the one that we're in now in a way that'll make sense for business people. And he also talks about what it'll take for AI to make the leap to contextual adaptation. The Department of Defense has a wing called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and they've defined these three waves of AI. Peter makes it business person simple. And again, not only explains what it might take to move into that third wave of contextual adaptation where AI becomes astronomically more capable, but also connects the dots in terms of what that might mean in your business. So what is the third wave and how might it change the current processes that you're developing in your business, even if you are already deploying AI? That's exactly what we're going to cover in this episode and uh, none better than Peter Tu himself. Again, the chief scientist for artificial intelligence at GE Research. If you're interested in AI trends and being able to spot and identify AI use cases and trends in your industry, we have a resource at the end of this episode that I will mention because there's a lot of trend tracking in this episode, so I figured that would be relevant. So stay tuned to the end if you're interested. Uh, otherwise, let's dive in on this episode. This is Peter Two with GE Research here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Peter, I'm glad to have you with us here on the show, and I know today we're going to be talking about, broadly, the third wave of artificial intelligence. You guys are doing some interesting work with DARPA, who's obviously kind of coined and framed up this problem. Can you explain to us how you like to articulate kind of the, the three phases and why it's important to get to that third one? Right. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, so the three waves of AI is sort of typically defined, is, is defined in the first stage, I would say, is a kind of reasoning over knowledge. We we have certain propositions or predicates, things that we know to be true. And if we can then combine them together, we can infer new things that are to be true. So for example, if, if A is a B and B is a C, therefore I would infer that A is a C. And you can start building more and more elaborate systems by sort of adding more knowledge to this database, if you will, and, and creating sort of inferences. And this is a very classical way of use of looking at knowledge, you know, predicate calculus, all that sort of stuff. The difficulty with these sorts of problems is that the, the knowledge gets, as you get more and more of it, it kind of collapses on itself. It, there's inconsistencies start to emerge, brittleness starts to happen. And once again, a large, lot amount of the, the promise that came from this starts to quickly fall apart. And we uh, we see, once again, what happened after that was what I call the, the, the AI winter, if you will, or one of the many AI winters yeah. that, that keep coming back to us. And so the next level of, uh, or the next stage was what I've called statistical inference, essentially. Uh, this is machine learning. This is neural networks. This is, uh, you know, discriminative classifiers and whatnot. But basically, the idea is you have a series of observations, X, and there's a series of associated with latent variables, Y, and you want to know what those Ys are. So if you can imagine a, a, uh, an image with a bunch of pixels, X, and why might be the image category that you're looking at. If you're looking at an ape or a dog or a camel in profile or a motorcycle or whatever it is, uh, that's when we look. Or if you're having a, a kind of time series of Xs and you want to know what the future state might be, Y might be, these are 
essentially statistical distributions of sorts. And so what we've learned with neural networks, uh, given you know enormous amounts of data, you can actually model these distributions of X and Y, if you will. And, that's, and then in the future, given an X, I can predict a Y. And we have made, you know, what I would consider astonishing you know, accomplishments with this, you know, face recognition and in, in certain services is better than, than what humans can do. We may see driving, you know, cars that can drive themselves at some point. We, we see a number of enormous things, but a lot of it assumes that a person essentially has anticipated the problem, if you will. Where I think the desire for the third wave of AI is, can we start to put these agents into situations where we didn't contemplate or anticipate the problems ahead of time? If I don't know what I'm looking at, can I still make, an, make some sort of judgment of what I should do now? So a good way of describing this is, is a, you know, sort of given unforeseen circumstances, can an agent get the gist of things? You know, what's important? What does this actually mean? And based on that, take the right actions. This is a, a daunting problem. It requires, you know, it, it it gets to the, both the technical and the philosophical as well. You know, what what does it mean to to get the gist of things? How do computation? How does one achieve these things? How does one gather the the wisdom and the creativity and the recognition, not just the the t- you know the inference and the prediction and the planning, if you will? So I see that's where the ambition of the third wave is 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 to be able to create that kind of robustness so that you know things can degrade gracefully if you will and maybe take us to that next level of what ai could be yeah so and and you're you're talking about you know almost developing what we might refer to as you know a, a common sense in some way where you know a machine learning model like a, a child and you and i off the microphone we're talking about how children learn which is an interesting model for intelligence broadly that's my own background as well on some level in terms of at least the psychology, but you know, a a child can see a balloon get dropped and a bowling ball get dropped once and kind of gets the idea. You know, if it's that hard, I probably don't want it falling on my foot, but a machine learning model, how much, how many hours of video and how many parameters does it have to drink in to pick up on that concept? So you're, you're saying, can we, you know, can we reach a level of sort of getting the gist i like the term by the way it's 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 not too broad but it's but it's it's a it's a nice umbrella getting the gist without you know hard coding every word and without drinking in 6 million examples of that same thing and that's a really tough one now we're going to talk at the end of the interview about what that would mean in business but just to talk about how to solve the problem you're on the hard research side you're doing basic research at at an extensive level one of the biggest companies in america you guys are working with DARPA on trying to crack this nut along with other firms. What are some of the approaches and models you're looking at to get us into that third phase there? Right, right. So one of the one of the areas that we're looking at is, is what I would consider one of the sort of the perennial problems of, of AI, which is the grounding problem. There was a philosopher, John Searle, who who put up to get put together the idea of what's known as the Chinese room, if you will. And so, you know, Alan Turing in his great work said, Well, you know, if I if I talk to a box and the box is able to say things such that I can't tell if this is a real person or not conversing, then the box must be intelligent. That was his general assertion, right? Whereas John Searle sort of came at this and said, Well, look, supposing I put you inside this box and you don't say you don't read, you don't understand Chinese characters and you're not literate in Chinese, whatever, but I give you a situation where people can put in questions in Chinese characters and I'm going to give you a big fat book and you can look at those characters and look at a bunch of rules and, and a bunch of instructions. And then you can construct a set of another Chinese characters from the outside, which actually answers that question, right? At, At no point do you understand what these symbols are. And we can't really say that you are intelligent in the sense of Chinese, yet 
from the outside world, you 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 know Chinese and are intelligent in that way. And so this has been the criticism of AI in general is that it's, it's not grounded. We it, it can manipulate symbols possibly and manipulate data, but it doesn't know what the data means. It doesn't know what the symbols mean. And so one of the goals of the work we're doing is to say, well, you know, can we crack our, you know, get a little bit forward on this problem? So we 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 look at the question of of, of children and how they manage to to gather what we call a kind of language model, and there's sort of four way four or five ways we look at that. One is is that we we do assume a child has got a large amount of experiences in the physical world. They've seen you know billions of things, and what we've noticed is that children can often come out of that process with their own private language to begin with. They may know that objects exist. They have attributes. They may have their own words for these things. And so they actually got to quite a level of sophistication of understanding this world without any supervision at all. I mean, if you just sort of walked around the world for three years without someone telling you what these things are, you essentially can pick these up. So to emulate that process, we've, we've been looking at these games called uh, reinforced, not re- emergent languages. And the idea behind emergent languages is there is a kind of like a game, if you will, between two agents. So if I were to take a, a bunch of images and I gave the two agents, a sender and a receiver, a, a kind of code book, if you will, or a dictionary, but no meaning, but the diction, but the terms of the dictionary have initially no meaning. So the game is, is, is rel- relatively simple. I, I, I'm randomly pick an image from the, from the box and I try to describe it to my, to my, to the receiver. And the receiver tries to guess what image I'm talking about. You may be given like 50 images and one of them is correct. If the receiver guesses right, then both are rewarded. And that's sort of a sender, both the sender and the receivers are rewarded. And if they're, but if it's wrong, we start the game over again with a new, with a new sample. So this process is kind of done over and over and over again, millions. And what we've shown is that by the end of this process, both agents have actually got a dictionary that they can use to describe the world, if you will. So maybe that's a that's a starting point for what a child could have. So if we expose the world to this this agent towards this kind of emergent language representations, then we can go to the next level. Well, supposing this ch- this this agent now has access to the physical world as well, where it's trying to do things. You know, I'm trying to you know I'm trying to solve problems and achieve things. Then I can start to see how these how, how maybe these concepts that I've discovered how maybe they might fit together with each other, how they relate to each other. And finally, I also look at the idea of metaphors, which is kind of an interesting area where we're trying to say, how does, how does an object in the scene, how can I describe that in terms of another object that I know? So if I know something about see my, the, the human body, for instance, can I make a metaphor between the human body and a table? And if I can do that, you know, I can imagine, you know, the legs of the table are my hands and my, 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 my legs, if you on the back, then to some extent, I get a sense of what does it mean to be a table or feel like a table, if you will. So you start bringing all these things together. And then the last thing I would say we also do is, is that the children are, are exposed to the rich heritage of our species, which is our language and our, our community. And that's where our wisdom is a kind of a repository for that. We are exposed to language all the time, which we, but probably in a non-supervised way. I mean, the child may listen to about 8,000, 10,000 words in a day. Many of those words may have nothing to do with what's going on in the scene, but you're starting to see the structure of these words. You're starting to see the grammar, the relationships that the concepts might there. And then with a little bit, as you sort of implied, like a, a little bit of induction, if you will, one or two examples is enough to see that concept where if I see a red ball, now I see, oh, I've seen this, I've seen this, the context of red ball. I know this is a ball that's red. Maybe there's other things that follow that pattern, like green balls and blue balls and cotton balls and basketballs and so forth. And so you see a blossoming of concepts. And even though you've never seen a basketball, 
you know that such a thing exists and now you're primed for it, right? And once you have that, then you can also have the idea of, of, of interacting with experts of the language, people themselves. You, so you, so by through this emergent language thing, I may have realized that there are such things as couches, but from my emergent language, I think there's two different types of couches, one that have lots of pillows and, and ones that are very sparse. And can you ask a person, well, what is what, is, what are these two different? Why are these two different? And we can say, well, maybe one's upholstered and one's not, or one has got lots of cushioning and one doesn't. And so once again, you start to see this idea of discovery. And children are always asking questions, but in a way that's rather remarkable. They, they don't ask that many questions, and, and people don't correct them that very very much, right? But yet they're able to make these giant inferences. And so we're trying to explore how that all comes together to create an AI agent that might be able to pull together a kind of grounded language, a grounded understanding of what, what these concepts mean and how they're used. It sounds like we're doing a lot of basic research around what the constituents of intelligence are, how they're manifested in a child, you know, cognitive science-wise, right, right, right. and then doing as much as you can do simulation-wise of what that looks like with AI. So I'll talk about that second part now a little bit. That point around you know, picking up on context and connection just as an observer is really interesting, right? Because the machine isn't going to point at something and say red ball unless you pretty darn well you know, pop a label on that thing. But a child just in a, a potentially infinite sea of sensory stuff, right? What is being felt? What is being seen? Where it could glance its eyes? Will will start to get pieces of the world. How the you know how do we start to work on the idea of metaphor with AI? So this idea of two agents being able to share concepts until they can converge and then communicate succinctly about things that that's a curious example that I think you were able to make a little bit visual in my mind. Right. right. How, how else do we get? AI systems to start to manifest some of these middle ground third wave concepts. Right, right. Well, let's talk about metaphor a little bit here. So, so one idea that that's becoming quite interesting is the concept of what's known as child as programmer. And so, the thinking here is is that supposing I were to uh, constru- want to construct a metaphor between, uh, say, a table and the human body, right? So, which is sort of kind of a mapping that we talked about before, the legs and the, the table of them. Supposing I were to say that I give you an image of, of something like a table, and what I could do is create a kind of program which would do the following things. So I've got certain modules. I can do sort of foreground, background, subtraction. I know what I know what's foreground, I know what's background. I could segment, I can have routines like segment the largest object in the scene, and then maybe segment the smaller parts in the scene, which might be the legs as well. But also I can say, and then and then I can also put instructions on this program of do these segmentations into these blobs and assign these blobs to these following parts, right? So that's a, a kind of a program, if you will, and an orchestration, which I could do. So instead of the explicitly defining the metaphor, I could say, okay, here's an object, and I can write out the, the modules that one would do to actually uh, compute that metaphor. Now, supposing I were to do this thousands and thousands of times, over and over and over again, playing in my play box, if you will. So I've got these images, and I've got these programs that I've constructed, and now, what seems to be an, a, a doable thing from going back to the machine learning perspective of the age is that I can actually learn how to take a raw image and then produce that sequence of of instructions, if you will, uh, purely by pattern. So, so the idea is now is I've learned how to construct programs based on enough examples of constructing programs, if you will. So that's a model that's kind of bridges between. The symbolic, as well as in, in, in the, the raw sort of you know pixels, if you will, or the or the, the continuous connectivity, and so what we're suggesting is that a large large number of these skills that we have might be just viewed as essentially 
a child learning how to make a program, if you will. So by playing, by doing all these things, we're learning how to construct these programs in a continuous fashion. And this is something we know how to do well in the second wave. So if we take those capabilities, such as learning how to construct metaphors, then that gives us the opening towards creating essentially a metaphor engine. And so now one could argue that much of what we do as a, as a cognitive agent is, is essentially constructing metaphors in a continuous fashion. It is almost like the currency of our thought, if you will. The insights flow from one of this. So I think that's that's one way. I'm not saying that's the only way, but that's something that we've explored is this idea of, of a program construction process, if you will. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it, it seems like, tell me if you see things this way. Of course, you know, what we're talking about right now is is it's tough stuff. I mean, it's basic research. Basic research implies grasping into the dark. You know, some of these rabbit holes will have uh, all kinds of neat treasures at the end and some won't have a lick of them. Um, and some of them we may ignore for a long time, like maybe neural yep. nets back in the early days, and then, and then yep. we'll pay a lot of attention to them later. Yep. The way that I'm seeing this play out is that some of these hypotheses and analogies that you're articulating now will become sort of like the cluster of hypotheses and early research of the Hintons and whatnot of the world that, that eventually bubbled into the second wave. So do you see it going like that? Like, in other words, there'll be a lot of competing hypotheses, a lot of simulated ideas, some of which start to get some grounding, start to get some use cases, and really start rolling forward. And it's like, whoa, that, as it turns out, was the key that unlocked at least the next step function improvement. Did you foresee it rolling out like that? Of course, we don't know timelines, but... Right, right, right. Yeah, I could... So the way I sort of see things moving out is instead of sort of... Uh, what I would say, a, like a race for the peak of the mountain, which is sort of, you know, you know, can I come up with the best face recognition engine and who, whoever has the best ROC curve wins sort of thing. You know, this is sort of what, what's driving us right now. I sort of see us running to a bunch of different valleys, uh, lots of different groups coming at this with lots of different ideas and lots of different inspirations, simply because, you know, where we are as, 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 as an intelligence is, is come through a large amount of evolution, right? You know, in, in a very contorted history. And one of the one of the fundamental problems is we don't have a great fossil history of, of cognition, right? We don't know what our ancestors, how our ancestors talked or thought or thing like that. And so it's very mysterious about that. But I think there are certain things that are that are true with respect to how we got to where we are, and that is a lot of what we are is 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 a matter of symbiosis. So I think a lot of the architectures that we are currently taking advantage of in our brain may not were probably driven by different purposes and different criteria at one point, but came together at other points in time in order to create more complexity. So like the human eye, for instance, is it's always been very difficult to argue how how the human eye could have been operating in a, in a sort of it, in a iterative sort of slightly differential manner. It really came back. Maybe it could have been very much the, the retina and the lens were completely two different things that serendipitously came together and actually produced something that's very extraordinary. So I, I, I have the suspicion that in, in terms of the evolution of our brains is that a large number of our capabilities are kind of serendipitous. It turns out that this, you know, the ability to navigate in a dark room and the ability to uh, remember your where you grew up as a house, you know, it turns out the hippocampus and the, and the neocortex actually came together and, and worked in a way that neither one of them were really geared towards working before. But and so that's why I see science working that same way. So, you know, maybe one group has come up with this interesting idea of how to do metaphors and another group has come up with an interesting idea of doing things. So I don't think you can plan research anymore. I think you have to let it grow now. I think we're getting to the organic stage of, of AI research and that different groups will come up with different hypotheses and different ideas. And even though they may be ch chasing after completely different things, they'll unlock some intuition, some insights 
that when you combine them together with another group's doing, I think you'll start to see some fascinating things happen from that. So to me, I think it's it's not a put an idea of putting a you know a, a cost function criteria. We're all going to optimize towards that. I think this is like a creativity engine that's going to blossom. So that's my view of how these things might roll out. Yeah, well, it might even be kind of an ideal view of what uh, scientific progress would look like. Or and similarly, I mean, man, there. How can we cost function intelligence itself anyway? I guess right. I mean, that's that's a exactly. that's a tough one. So getting down to what this might lead to, clearly GE, you know, has some some pretty strong impetus to further AI because you've got enough operations around the world to have a lot of different use cases here. When you think about what the third wave could allow for that really ML and, and you know traditional you know expert system first wave stuff is not prepared for what are some examples of hey you know here's what we think we could unlock or here's what we think we could right, unlock right right so when i think of industrial research i mean we certainly are, are are consumers of ai techniques and so forth i mean the general pattern of what i would consider what what ai is today uh, generally revolves around control you know what parameters can i set in order to get the best performance out of this device and then the next level is, you know, part of that is also inference. Given my sensing capability, I can I can make certain measurements. I can and thus infer certain hidden states that I can't directly, you know, recognize. And this is important for telling me how long this device will last, or if there's a fault or or a broken things like that. The third area is, you know, prediction. We do a lot of prediction right now. And then finally, some sort of planning, right? Which I could say, you know, given my understanding of what the state of this device is and what it's going, to, what the future state could be, I should take the following action in order to get the best result. And that that's a virtuous loop, and that's that's considered what I would consider what's going on today. What I think is going next is the question of what I would call recognition, which is to say, I didn't anticipate these sensor things, but how do I make sense of it? I would say creativity is a sense of. This is my current operating system, but can I come up with a better solution? Can I come up with something that is inherently different from what I was designed to do? And, and can I redesign myself? And the third area is what I would call wisdom. Whereas to say, it's not so much uh, one experience of one agent that's data-driven, but a large set of experiences by a, a community of agents that can go from raw data to insights, insights that can generalize to new situations. And so when I see uh, things like a like a set of wind turbines or, or windmills, if you will, great, great. what I see in that is each windmill could be its own agent having a kind of cultural inheritance, if you will, of concepts, but at the same time, all having unique experiences. And in this way, I sort of see, so an example might be one agent may all of a sudden be hit by a bird, you know, a bird strike is a big problem. The birds hit the, yeah, they may yeah. not know what this is, right? But another agent may have, you know, maybe been hit by a rock before. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's, and it has gone through the hard learning of, you know, reinforcement learning, whatever, to figure out what does it mean for a rock to, to stabilize it. And then it can say, well, I haven't, I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds like a lot like a rock. And then the question is, well, well, what do rocks, you know, am I being hit by rocks or this is something different? And then another, then you can discuss with another agent, well, I think this is a bird because of the way it is, but I don't know what a bird's, you know, what do I do about birds? And then while well, another agent may realize, well, birds are seasonal. They come at this time of the year and not this time of year. So I see an idea, not so much of huge amounts of data to solve the problems, but large numbers of experiences across multiple agents in a way that they can consolidate those learnings to handle the new situation. So to me, that's where wisdom starts to emerge. And so I, I can see a kind of conversation but also a repository of insights that allows these. So once again, if these windmills 
are grounded agents in their environment. So we've shown that we could take these emergent languages, as I talked about before, and apply it to sensor data of the, of, the, of the windmill. And so they hopefully will generate their own concepts. So instead of me hardwiring, as, I always view hardwiring as kind of short-circuiting intelligence in a way, right? You know, I've, yeah. I've already assumed everything there is. That, to me, is inherently limiting, right? At, at some point, we have to let these things experience the world, come to their conclusions, discover their concepts, but build on those things and build the insights. So if we can give the, fran- the, 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 the franchise, if you will, to build these concepts, then I think that's where we're going. Okay. So let me see. I'll try to congeal this windmill example, then maybe we can touch on another winter, this, this wind turbine, uh, you know, I presume like electricity generating tower. Um, so maybe during certain seasons and certain temperatures, sometimes, you know, while, while we're used to the, the blade spinning at a certain speed, certain elements within the rotor due to temperature alter that to a degree to which might kick off some really big please repair me signals. But but in all honesty, you know, the other machines that have kind of been in a similar experience sort of know that to be what their seasonal pattern is. So we didn't say, hey, the repair signal is slightly different for this part right, of rotor right. thing under these circumstances. But the machine said, we operate fine. So we don't feel like we're going to put this into a red notice for humans. We might leave right, it in right. the yellow notices, but honestly, we think it's okay. Now, this is conceptually what you're getting at. Yeah, conception's there, exactly. I mean, I, I sort of view that as also slightly more than just uh, a, a classification of state, but more of an ex- explanation of state, you know? Huh, um, okay. So where I think AI needs to get to, where maybe it's not where it is right now, is that, you know, I, I can estimate what the current situation is, but I don't, I can't really explain why that situation is the way it is. Uh, and to me, I think that's the way we get towards explanation is because we can take concepts that may have been developed in other contexts, but then adapt them and reason over them in order to apply them to new contexts. So I, I still think that's where metaphors and grounding comes in again. But to me, it's you know almost like the when I talked about the rock and the and the bird is that the you know the the rock is a metaphor for the bird, or the bird is a metaphor for a rock in a way. And in that way, you get that flow of of, of knowledge, but also it, it elevates from. I think I'm cracked to, I, I can explain how this happened, right? And to me, that's sort of what we have to get to, is that, that explainable knowledge, if you will. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but it, it sort of feels like if we want to explain in a way that humans can go in and say, hey, team, here's what happened with these turbines. We either need to come up with a coded, you know, you talked about agents sharing a dictionary, which may very well not be English at all, right? It could be any right, right. set of symbols. It seems like if we're going to have agents explain things through their own dictionary we'd either need our own chinese book to read what the heck it's putting out or it's going to need to to understand to explain things in an english-esque fashion right, um, is, right. is that is that the case i mean is nlp going to have to layer up for these things to to kick out the right messaging to, to humans yeah. Or? yeah so you bring up an interesting concept of how does it go from explaining to each other to explaining to you or i for instance right so w- one thing that's actually quite interesting is what we've shown is that these um, machine translation, as you know, which exists today, you know, between so English and French and French and, and Hindi or, or or whatever, that can be done remarkably well with some of the newer you know GPT threes and, and so forth. What we've shown is that you can actually take if you can have a if you can label instances with natural language and take the emergent languages, we can do a, an actual translation between emergent languages and in a natural language 
language, if you will. So what we've done in the past is built emergent languages back from the wind turbines is we've built emergent languages based on the signals they get, they produce, but also take logs that our repair persons would take a look at in terms of writing down what, what's wrong with this particular wind turbine and then show that machine translation can actually go from the raw the symbols derived from the signals to essentially the, the, the natural language representation. So in some ways that's possible, but the gaps are here is that not all languages are the same. So there are certain, you know, there are certain poems that are written in French that are very difficult to translate into English, that the English language doesn't have those concepts. Or, or, or in Chinese, right, where, where exactly. you know, every, every poem is a picture and every picture a poem is the old phrase of Chinese poetry. And it, it's sort of like, yeah, you, you can't really English it. You can't exactly. actually get the, all the, the way the there. It just is what it is. Exactly. Yep, I mean, you, yep. can, you can try and you can explain and you can you, hand wave. You, you but, come up with six different versions of it and say it's right, in right, the middle right. here, but but you can't do it. Yeah, you can't get there exactly. So so I think there will be always be there always be the language gap. There will always be the semantic gap, and, and so that's something that we're going to have to contend with. But I think that's sort of you know it's, it's like if, if you know if if you if you have a private language with each other. I mean, there's there's common ground, and that's where I think this goes back to uh, uh, Michael Tomasello's work is essentially at the some level what communication really is is about establishing conceptual common ground right that seems to be the core of cooperation as well as, as communication and my suspicion is is that that's really what we're after here i mean we're not just trying to come up with descriptions of scenes we're trying to create a conceptual common ground and at that point the question is, is what is the society of wind turbines what is their conceptual common ground and if we can trans translate that into something that's you know understandable for us, then I think we've solved what we what we essentially need to do here. And is that is that common ground that we're after? I think. Yeah, hard problems, hard problems. Obviously, uh, you know, DARPA is not pulling in. You know, you guys and whoever else is working. I know uh, a lot of folks are working with DARPA on this third wave. You know, some of the the most powerful companies in the country and tough stuff. But um, you know, as you've said here we'd be able to get to a deeper place. We'd be able to maybe understand, maybe act, maybe explain in ways that are just beyond what ML can do. And you, you've dropped a couple good examples there. Hopefully for those of you who are listening into this episode, you can sort of think about what might unlock as we get to this next phase. Unfortunately, I don't think Peter has any timelines for those of you that wish he did, but, uh, but, but I, I think it's going to be an exciting future to follow and I'm glad we've got smart folks working on it. So Peter, I know that's all we had for time, but thank you so much for being able to join us here on the show. Dan, thank you very much. And uh, as always, great discussion. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Peter Tu for joining us. And thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in all the way to the end of this episode. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, we have a resource about identifying AI trends. You can download our free PDF brief called Three Ways to Discover AI Trends in Any Sector at emerj.com slash T3. That's T as in trends and the number three, emerj.com slash T3. So again, if you're interested in figuring out what new kinds of use cases are going to pop up in my industry, what's happening in adjacent industries that I might be able to apply now, this is a market research-backed resource that we hope you'll find handy and useful in the year ahead as we start to roll closer and closer to that third wave of AI. So that's all for this episode. I look forward to catching you in the next one here on the AI and Business Podcast.